Before we jump in today, we wanted to tell you about a new campaign and newsletter from Getting Smart. It's called What If, and it's all about encouraging educators and ed leaders to think differently about education and learning. Every week, we will send you a What If question about the future of learning, leading, and community. This campaign is all about engagement, so we'd love it if you'd sign up and share your thoughts on Twitter, or send them to editor at gettingsmart.com. Sign up for the list today at gettingsmart.com slash what dash if. We can't wait to see what you come up with. All right, let's jump in. Hey, Ken, what is a portrait of a graduate and why should a community consider developing one? Well, Tom, uh, the portrait of a graduate is something that several different groups um, uh, developed as a, a way of going forward to try to redefine the goals of education to be consistent with the realities of 21st century life and work. And what we came up with was an idea, uh, a number of us had been working on a paradigm like the four C's, critical thinking, communication, collaboration, creativity. But the portrait of a graduate notion was that each community actually had to have that discussion themselves and come to their own conclusion about what are the competencies that all the stakeholders in that community felt were the ones that really would make a difference in, in students' lives going forward. And so that's become to be known as the portrait of a graduate. And it's a community-based conversation and a community-based consensus building process to create specific student outcomes that are central to their life success. You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. I'm Tom Vanderark, and I have the pleasure of being joined today by Ken Kay. He's the, many of you know him as the founder of Partnership for 21st Century Skills. For 20 years, uh, he was world's leading advocate for the four C's, communication, creativity, collaboration, critical thinking. Uh, he founded a successor organization uh, called Ed Later 21, and uh, in August released a terrific new book called Redefining Student Success. We had the pleasure of having Ken and his co-author um, Susie Boss on, on with us back then. And we're also joined by uh, Dr. Young Zhao. He's a, a distinguished professor at the School of Education at the University of Kansas. Uh, many of you know uh, Dr. Zhao is really a, a world-famous uh, advocate for modern pedagogy. He also has a terrific new book out that you're going to enjoy. It's called Learners Without Borders, New Learning Pathways for All Students. Ken, uh, Dr. Zhao, welcome. Thank you, Tom. Delighted. Thanks for having us, Tom. And Dr. Zhao, what, what, could, what could possibly go wrong with this great idea of uh, having communities update their learning goals and develop a portrait of a graduate? Well, thanks, Tom. I think it's, uh, again, a community to talk about what they want their students to become is definitely a very valuable approach. I don't think uh, many communities have gone through that, you know. Uh, uh, but but my, my concern really are um, multiple folds. One is that um, I always think, what if the community gets it wrong? So, you know, like in, when you describe a portrait and you force all your children to get that portrait and to become uh, uh, that portrait, but, you know, societies change and technologies change. And I'm sure you are very aware of that. 
and boom, you just miss that, you know. Uh, so that, that that's a potential danger. Uh, I'm always worried about people working in the Stone Age, and suddenly, God, we're in the Bronze Age. God, you know, how to find rocks doesn't matter anymore. So that, that's one thing. Another thing I, I, I worry about is, uh, is how, what if children are not interested? You know, you get uh, any community, you get 10,500 students, uh, you know, they they're very different. Children are extremely diverse and different and differences in terms of both natural born talents and, you know, experiences. So some students can be very weak in one area, which is okay. I mean, you feel free to be bad at something. That's, I've been arguing about the jagged profile. You know, like I'm, I'm horrible as a Chinese guy in, in math. Actually, I'm horrible as an American guy to, in, in math. I got three out of a hundred points in a college entrance exam. If you know math, that's very bad. But I never try to fix that. You know, I, I try to become what I can become. I mean, that's why people try to say, I can teach you how to play American football. I said, no, I never try that. You know, how many Chinese have you seen on the football field? But anyway, that's the one thing is just to say, if you have a prescription from externally to describe what you should become, but what children are, it's different. Another thing is children have intentions. If they don't see the immediate outcome of doing something, why would they do that? Actually, I want to go back to you know what Ken was talking about, the four C's. I said, what if a guy is extremely collaborative, but just is not really creative? That can be very valuable. You don't need them to be equally uh, in that domain. I mean, a final point I, I want to say is, is this, is that um, a portrait can be discussed and come up at a community, but our communities are so global now. You know, if, if you, they may not work in the community of uh, Tucson where Ken is, but you may need the skills that might reach in another community in India. Or what if uh, we exist a global community and how do you get to that piece? You know, of course, finally, I will say, uh, do communities have the competence, knowledge, skills to come up with those things? So there are many, many kind of issues, but I think it's a good approach to get started with that. Ken, uh, like you, we're, we're really excited that uh, globally we're seeing so many communities getting serious about uh, updating their learner goals. But how do we square uh, Dr. Zhao's um, interest in a, in a jagged profile of the individual with a, a community agreement around a, a new set of learning goals called a portrait of a graduate? Well, uh, let's get back to the jagged piece in a minute, because I think that's actually easier to deal with. And I think that we probably have a lot of concurrence on it, I suspect. But let's start with reality, which is um, I would love if we could have a global conversation and glo and global um, uh, and there are some great conversations happening around the world about 21st century competencies. The United States is actually quite behind the eight ball with regard to those conversations, uh, I, I suspect. And I think um, both of you might agree with that. So we're stuck in a situation where federal and state policy is completely anathema to the notion of modernizing uh, school models. And we don't really have any good conversations happening at the federal or state level. Very, very few. I, I guess I have a few examples at the state level um, where people recognize the need to shift to a new set of outcomes for the 21st century. So I look at that landscape and feel that the only hope in this country right now 
is the 100, 200, 400 districts that have gone through this exercise and are leading the way. They're finding great models. So I think, Young, you can uh, you can worry about whether communities will get it right or not, but the reality is that the communities are getting it a whole lot more right than the state or the federal governments are. So I start with the premise, how do we create a base of success stories in this country in which maybe we can get to a thousand, two thousand uh, districts out of four, uh, you know out of out of uh, fourteen thousand um, that are doing the right thing, and use that as a basis to try to reset the conversation about twenty first century goals. Ken, I, the thing I most appreciate about your new book, Redefining Student Success, is the focus on uh, problem solving, creative problem solving that. School for too long has been about small problems with right answers, and you and your new book uh, really advocate for a series of big, gnarly problems that don't have right answers and inviting young people into that community-connected problem-solving space. Uh, Dr. Zhao, would you agree that that, that problem-solving is a, a priority set of skills? Uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I, I think so, but, but I would like to push a little bit more is to is not only solving problems, but it's really finding problems worth solving. And I think, you know, a lot of times, yes, you know how to solve a problem, a predefined problem, but do you know why we need to solve the problem? I mean, I know both of you deal with a lot of uh, venture capitalists. For example, if you had a proposal to go to, you want to ask for some money, people will say, why do you want to solve that problem? Why is that worth solving? I think that's really key. I, I think schools don't teach kids to train their mindset to select problems, identify problems, to drop problems, to switch problems. I think that's really important. So I would love to add problem identification, you know, to move on and problem solving because, you know, identifying the problem worth solving is you know why we are doing certain things and how that may create value for others. And plus, with technology, we're going to have fewer and fewer identified problems now. We need to really look for more problems. Uh, Tom, you know, one of the great interviews in the book is with Daniel Pink, who wrote uh, A Whole New Mind 15 years ago, it's hard to believe. And we asked him what he thought about how things have progressed. And he said exactly what Young just said. He said, look, when I wrote that book, I missed the whole topic of problem finding. And um, and now because of uh, AI, artificial intelligence, that's probably more important than, pro- than, than, than problem solving. So um, that, I think that, that Young makes an important point. But I wanted to go back to really what motivated us to emphasize uh, creative problem solving so much, which is that goes to this issue uh, that I think the three of us could discuss about incremental versus uh, more uh, transformational change. What we worried about with the four C's is people would look at those and basically say, well, we'll, we'll just um, shoehorn a little critical thinking or a little communication or collaboration into state standards. And that's not going to get us where we need to go. I mean, it's not a bad thing to do, but it's not the ultimate solution of transformation. And we felt that if we get people to focus on creative problem solving as maybe the most important of all outcomes, that they would realize they have to start looking at cross 
disciplinary, interdisciplinary, big problems like sustainability, like civic engagement, a whole bunch of societal challenges, and that that would have them begin to see how important it will be to not just shoehorn a few standards into existing curriculum, but to reconceptualize interdisciplinary curriculum. Dr. Zhao, I'd love to, I want to ask you about equity. Um, Your great new book, Learners Without Borders, um, Learning New Pathways for All Students, um, new learning pathways for all students. I, I love the concept. Appreciate your your embrace of the jagged profile. How, how do we how do we help all learners create pathways that make sense for them and do it with equity? Well, thanks, Tom. Uh, uh, well, I mean, first let me actually say a little bit. I, I love what King K said. Communities can find out better outcome for students than states and federal government. I completely agree with you. Let's go for that. So I, I think uh, uh, that may also come to the idea about equity. Uh, there's so many issues involved in equity. Uh, I just want to highlight one thing. I think it's providing resources. And, and now there are so many different ways to provide educational resources. You know, Online, for example, is a piece that we have uh, lost. You know, State can do that. You know, District can do that. Another one is uh, about um, educators. You know, but I, I don't really highlight that. This is actually what's happening strangely now in China. So in China right now, they are forcing, by the way, I'm not necessarily in agreement with this. They're forcing teachers and school leaders to rotate across different schools in a way to equalize educational opportunities. I am not sure that's not that's the best way, but that's just an approach just trying to equalize education resources. And I think right now we, we mix outcomes with the resources. What we want our children to become, to be able to do, like you were mentioning in my new book, I was really talking about following the students and parents, their intentions, their abilities, so they can have different pathways. Because today, given all the education resources, you could really get a traditional college, college kind of degree without going to college. It's, it's all possible to do that. So I was more talking about where you can go. But at the same time, states, federal government, and communities have to provide enough funding, enough education. This is going to be quite challenging. Think about um, your students can now learn all from YouTube. Oh, but who is creating YouTube, right? And then you can take a course from a MOOC course from Harvard. But who is creating that? I think also are our students been taught to access these resources is another part of equity. I think now we have uh, this deficit-driven model applied to our disadvantaged students. We're teaching them only what I want to teach you is right. Let's do more reading, more math. And then so they are not taught to access things beyond their schools, beyond their classes. I think that's what we can help the disadvantaged children. I know there are a lot of other issues, Tom. You know, we can address social, you know, school inequity is a social inequity. But that, you know, can go on for a long time waiting for public policies. We have children in our classes every day. Every day, we got to help them to access what's available to increase the equity ability in our students, not just to give them some, but enable them to master their own learning. Ken, thoughts on equity? Um, portrait of a graduate, new pathways in equity. How, how, how can we embrace 
all three of those ideas? Um, well, a couple of thoughts. One of the things that we found was that people who are embarking on a portrait of a graduate really need to embrace the equity issue at that moment. It is a, absolutely a, the perfect moment to be addressing inequities in your system. And in fact, if you don't, you're going to be building the inequities into your new portrait of a graduate, which makes no sense. We had one district in, in Bellingham, Washington, that has done some really excellent work um, around equity and found uh, by really looking hard at the equity issue, they've dramatically changed practices. So for example, they eliminated every, every fee, uh, parent or home uh, family fee of any kind, because they thought it was a disparity. And they made the decision as a district that in order to eliminate those inequities, that the school would absorb any cost of any program that students were going to participate in, which is really uh, remarkable and very, uh, uh, very powerful. So I would just say, um, if you undertake the portrait of a graduate, you have to undertake the, your equity conversation and analysis at, this, at the same time. Um, as far as um, career pathways go, um, I, I, I am, uh, I, I just happened to spend last week at the annual conference of ACTE, the group that focuses on career and technical education, and um, really have always been a big fan of theirs for the last 20 years, um, and, and, and think that uh, they do a great job of teaching a lot of the 21st century competencies, uh, but people outside of CTE don't realize that. And so you have a system right now where people not going to college don't address CTE skills and aren't getting them. Um, and so we had some very good conversations. And Tom, you might share a little bit about how one could broaden the pathways of CTE to include things like community problem solving and public policy that are not traditional CTE pathways that might make people realize that the CTE option should should be available and encouraged for every student. Tom, uh, if I might want to add something about equity, when it uh, why is the issue of race? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm Chinese. Uh, honestly, you know, I came here quite old, was 27. I kind of ignored the, the, my Chinese background, but my two children are, are, are kind of grew up here. And during Thanksgiving, they were talking a lot about racial discrimination uh, against Chinese. I said, you know, I never paid attention to that. But anyway, because I was stuck in a university. So that's one thing about when we talk about equity, talk about the future pathways. People have to come out from their cultural background, their cultural strength. Another thing is equity is global equity. I think right now in the U.S., we talk a lot about equity within the U.S. We kind of have retracted from the global concerns. You know, in sub-Saharan countries, the global south, we have so many people. They are technically in a globalized village. They're technically online. And technically, they could access the market any place. But what's their education? How are we helping them to build? I'm sure in education, you cannot be the only rich guy on the block. You have to think about how do we help with the global equity, but still with the cultural sensitivity. I appreciate that. We're excited that so many schools are adopting um, or using the UN Sustainable Development Goals as a way to guide um, a, a, and invite 
young people into the most pressing issues of our day and to frame projects around those goals. I, I want to talk about our credentialing and see if skills credentialing and experience credentialing and creating these digital learning records could be part of how we express new learning goals as a portrait of a graduate, respect jagged profiles, and promote equity in our systems. Could, could skill credentialing and credentialing individual um, achievements, capturing those in a digital record that helps learners tell their story, is, is that a way that we can honor uniqueness and have a set of system priorities around new skills? Are, are, are both of you bullish on, on this uh, move towards credentialing or nervous about it? Well, I mean, I, I'm uh, always suspicious of credentialing, you know, uh, it's uh, because any kind of credentialing, unless it's really driven by students, uh, it can distort the picture, you know, because, you know, like, you know, people say, oh, there's still rubrics, but rubrics kind of reduce authenticity of, of the work. So what I'll be uh, interested in is what I call a, a strength profile so maybe can we combine that? Is each student has a strength profile? Yes, indeed, you got you have to have like third percent of your time taking care of what you need to know as a citizen. You know, everybody needs to know that. But then a lot more is about how to build your strength, and and that strength can can document what you did, can what you learned, can document where you might go. So so that is like individualized, personalized strength profile that added towards the common portrait. But again, there's, there's no predetermined criteria. Instead, we look at what you have. It's like you look at artists, when the artist work, you know, it's what you have. And, and instead of trying to invite you to say, well, we are looking for work of this kind, and then you do something. But it's driven by the student's passion and ability, and we document that. Ken, how do we help learners tell their story once a system has adopted a, a portrait of a graduate? Well, I think there are lots of systems developing um, and um, uh, there are lots of, of um, uh, profiles being put together, the Mastery Transcript Consortium and others, which I think, uh, you know, I, I offer some hope for. Let me talk about I'm a little bit more bullish on the credentialing issue, and I think it goes to the issue of whether it or not it is student-driven. So I have run across programs where kids want to get close to a health sector credential or are within a year of it when they graduate high school uh, and can do that with a community college, uh, or they want to go into the military. Um, uh, uh, by the end of high school. So it seems to me that the idea that we can help uh, students actually at an earlier age identify pathways that really mean something to them, if that is the case, and I know Young's worried we're imposing that on them, but if we're not, and they say, well, in my community, I really want um, a, a credential in um, high-level farming skills, you know, farming IT, um, I think we should help them get that. So, um, I, and I think that the partnerships in communities um, uh, can allow that. I want to go back to the issue of jagged uh, because um, I, I do think the three of us have a lot to offer that conversation, which is the, the reason that this all came up is 
we looked at a, at a terrible landscape of state and federal standards, and we said, okay, let's work on a profile of a graduate. And then some people like Young go, um, but I'm worried that that profile of a graduate is going to be imposed standardization. And that's the conversation we're really having. How do we create a profile of a graduate and not have it look like traditional standardization. I think the profile of the graduate can be a North Star for districts, for students, for parents. If it's within the context, I don't know that jagged is the term that we're going to stick with, but I, I think we all ought to work on that description, which is from my perspective, how do we allow students to grow and flourish and fulfill their potential within the contexts of general competencies that the society needs. And it's that balance of allowing the students to fulfill their own potential and address their own uh, self-directed learning plan within the context of a portrait of a graduate that is the balance we've got to try find. I think that's what we've been struggling with in this conversation. Well, Ken, I think, you know, um, if you are describing what I call the floor expectation. That is the floor that makes everybody walk. That is, in, in, you know, in our school's curriculum, when you describe this, we, we don't distinguish that. We say, okay, what we, the society expects you to be as a citizen of the community, of the state, of the federal government, of the globe, versus what makes each and everybody successful and thriving. I think there are, there's a two different sets. I, th I wouldn't have no problem to agree to say, okay, we have a jack, we have one profile for all students, but that's very minimum. That's very basic. That's maybe, again, I said 30% of our student time. Then the rest should be about who you are, what problems you can solve, what problems you could engage in, what learning journeys you could have. I mean, I would even venture to say, Let's get rid of 12 years. Why should we study 12 years, right? I mean, why, why do we need to do that? I mean, a lot of kids have not finished 12 years. They're successful on YouTube. They're successful computing. They're successful coding. And there are a lot of examples. So I think we have, should have two sets. One is the floor expectation. One is the ceiling expectation. The ceiling has to be jagged for individuals. The floor needs to be common, I think. There's a... There's an interesting, um, I, I don't want to uh, compromise, um, brewing in, in Kansas City uh, near you, Dr. Zhao, uh, where the region has come to a set of agreements about experiences likely to be beneficial to young people. And they include uh, client-connected projects and internships and entrepreneurial experiences, as well as college credit and industry credentials. And so while many districts are uh, developing a portrait of a graduate and focusing on those skills, there's this regional set of agreements that all kids ought to have access to powerful community-connected experiences, um, and it gives every community and every learner a chance to sort of lean into that framework in their own way and shape experiences that are important to them. We think it's really powerful because it's mobilized 600 business and civic partners across the region that are stepping in and and helping learners create these really powerful experiences so that might be the path forward of having communities agree on skills that matter and experiences uh, likely to matter and then giving learners the opportunity to to co-create experiences uh, that that are meaningful to them yeah i've been to one of those uh, uh schools in the kansas city area 
they have built some really, really cool kind of professional learning opportunities. I also have heard my colleagues say their children went there, changed their mindset. Because, I, I, you know, all my work is really emphasis on the idea about uh, one size does not fit all. And that should not be a slogan. That should be how do we create opportunities to shape our children. You know, I was, I was just, I'm trying to write another book. It was really interesting. I was playing with this idea of, you know, the, uh, the brain-computer interface. If BCI is correct, if we can, can, if we can truly change or your kid through one, you know, BCI interaction, would you do it? You know, it's, a, it's, a, like, you know, it's a lot of people, parents do those things, right? I mean, like, would you say, if I give your children a pill to say, that will get them into Yale. Would you be willing to alter your children for that purpose? So that's the kind of why I'm very hesitant to say one approach, one profile can cause problems. This is also why I'm in my book, you know, Learners Without Borders, trying to say the power of the individual should be liberated a lot more. And all individual children can achieve a different kind of education if we encourage them to do so. I think there's too much imposition by the federal and state government on individual students to say, what we define you as good. And that's what we do, standardized testing, curriculum. I think we need to shift change that. So I, I think we know that, that if there's a point at which um, uh, Young moves from the Department of Education to the Department of Pharmacology, we're all in a lot of trouble. Uh, well, I'm not doing that, and I can't do that. <laughs> I, I did appreciate uh, in the first chapter of your book, Young, is that you said, uh, unless students are involved as change makers and can make schooling work for them, it's unlikely that school outcomes will change. So I, I appreciated that engaging learners as change makers. I think of that both as change makers in the, in the school transformation, but also change makers in their in their community. Say more about that. How should we be engaging learners? There are two things I want to say that. One is, um, I don't know if you've seen the most recent NAEP data, the long-term NAEP data. And basically, we made progress when we declined. So I was joking about this, you know, over the past 50 years, education research hasn't done anything to be meaningful. I'm thinking about, or, or we haven't really improved much education. I think one of the reasons is that we did not involve students. You know, we've played with the curriculum, we've played with pedagogy, we've played with teachers, assessment. We tried everything. We trying to design the perfect prison for all our students. But unless you involve students to change their education journey, that's not very possible. Another thing I think in this country, uh, and in many countries, we have another wrong approach. We said our okay, parents should be a lot more involved in children's education. I said that's not necessarily so. You know, we try to blame, you know, poor parents for not being able to attend, you know, teacher conferences, for not being able to what I've been arguing, you know, like we did research in Thailand, in Vietnam, in I came from a poor country in China. Children should be the connector between family and the new society. Children can do a lot more, like you were saying, Tom, for their community, for their family, and for, you know, for the bigger society. A lot of immigrant kids are translators to connecting with them. So I would like to say children, as the new owners of a new society, as the creators of, an, of our future, should be leading their learning. And they can if we give them the opportunity. I think with growing children to be dependent on the teacher, dependent on the curriculum, to be dependent on the school, to be successful. 
I think a lot of our children can redefine that. I, I'd like to wrap with a, a segment we call one two one, and I want to start with a. The first question is, I'd like you both to name one person um, that's influenced your your thinking on this front. Could be recent or uh, historic, but uh, Ken, who who's who have you learned from recently? Well, in, in, in writing the book, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you two really quick ones. One is I interviewed my grandson for our book. And um, and he was working on an entrepreneurship problem. And I asked him how he felt about the kind of teaching that he received in that example. And he, ma- he made it in the book because he said, you know, you got to stay inside the lane that they give you. But if you but if you do that, they give you a lot of freedom within that lane. And I, I just thought for, you know, for um, a sixth grade project, that was pretty pretty stellar comment. Um, the the other comment, I, I just was this past week with the director of career academies in Akron, uh, Rachel Tecca, and I was reminded of my conversation with her when her superintendent called her and said, we're thinking of creating career academies in every high school in Akron, and I want your high school to be the first. And I said to her, well, when you got that question from the superintendent, what was your answer? What went through your head? How did you process that? And she said to me, you know, for the past four years as principal, I've been shaking the hands of every graduate in my high school, knowing when I shook their hands that they really weren't ready for the world beyond. And I, I and I, when I thought about that, I turned to my superintendent and said, I'm in. That's great. Young, who, who, uh, who has been influential for you? Well, there are many people, of course. As, as we grew up, a lot of people influenced you. I think uh, in educational thoughts specifically is actually uh, Professor David Berliner uh, out of uh, Arizona State University. Uh, his uh, book, Manufacturer Crisis, was written among the first for me to look at data differently. And I've been looking at data very differently. And later on, his book, you know, called um, Collateral Damage, about high-stakes testing. So I've always admired David's work. And But the most important thing, his work, you know, gives you another way to think about education. You know, he, he's uh, 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 another big piece was talking about uh, the equity issues, you know, in education. It was really powerful to think about how the society has uh, actually uh, changed how we think about uh, our equity. So Berliner definitely is, uh, you know, one of the most important uh, person who influenced me thinking about education. Thanks. Those are both great answers. All right. The, the two insights that I draw really from, from uh, both of you, the, the first one is the tremendous benefit of having a community conversation today about uh, what learners should know and be able to do. And, how that not only can express new learning goals, but really begin to unlock um, opportunity to create new learning experiences and new pathways. So community conversations. And number two, really from Dr. Zhao, um, to be thoughtful about how we express new graduation requirements, how we construct new pathways to make sure that we're engaging learners and um, recognizing individual profiles, (laughs) jacket or not, uh, but respecting individual profiles, 
what, what would both of you add to that in terms of a key insight for ed leaders in terms of what they should do next? You know, uh, I would jump in. I, th- I think uh, um, whatever we do, we should always be suspecting our own behaviors. When we prescribe something, design something for other people, we should always be thinking about we could be wrong. We could be wrong. And if that if we could be wrong, what else could we do? Think about alternative possibilities. Well, I, I will do a nice counterpoint to that, which is um, I'm sitting here thinking that in the current moment, the COVID experience has really exposed how wrong we are now. And therefore, I'm viewing this as a moment of opportunity for, for transformation. And so my advice to leaders is, is that this is actually, it, it may seem daunting and, and weird to have community conversations at a time of such dissonance, but these community conversations have been very unifying and very invigorating and very energizing um, just at a time that otherwise the, the dissonance in the, in the education sector um, is so paralyzing. So I, I think my advice to them is I hope you take this conversation and realize it's very challenging work. It's not easy. It's, and I think the idea of blending the portrait of a graduate with a jagged profile makes a whole lot of sense. But I don't want people to be paralyzed by it. I want them to be energized to take action and bring their community forward to a better model of education. Uh, this has been so fun uh, having you on together. I'm glad that we did it this way. Um, check out Dr. Um, Young Zhao's new book, Learners Without Borders, New Learning Pathways for All Students. It's a, a great new book from Corwin. You can find him on Twitter at Young Zhao ED. Is there any other place you want to send us, Young? No, that's fine. That, that's good. You know, uh, they can go to Tom and then you can find me or they can go to Ken. And uh, you can find Ken K uh, on Twitter at Ken K21. Um, check out Ken's new book, uh, Redefining Student Success. Go back to our August podcast and listen to that uh, with Ken and Susie. Um, it's a terrific new book. Hey, we appreciate having uh, both of you with us this morning. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having us, Tom. Thanks, Young. Thank you. It was great. And thanks to our uh, producer and poet laureate, uh, Mason Pasha, and to the whole Getting Smart team for making this possible. Keep learning and keep innovating for equity. See you next week. Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason at GettingSmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much.